both can't any of this stuff, please ask questions. There's no reason to worry about being judged. We're really open and we really love all this stuff. So we love all of you. Uh, as always, if you want to follow us on Twitter or anywhere else, we're at D&GQC on Twitter, uh, DGQC on Patreon. If you want to support our message and mission, uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, I don't really post there often because I hate social media. Uh, so with that, uh, I want to go ahead and uh, start diving into the machines. In what respect are desiring machines really machines in anything more than a metaphorical sense? A machine may be defined as a system of interruptions or breaks. These breaks should in no way be considered as a separation from reality. Rather, they operate along the lines that vary according to whatever aspect of them we are considering. Every machine, in the first place, is related to a continual material flow that it cuts into. It functions like a ham slicing machine, removing portions from the associative flow. The anus and the flow of shit it cuts off, for instance. The mouth that cuts off not only the flow of milk, but also the flow of air and sound. The penis that interrupts not only the flow of urine, but also the flow of sperm. Each associative flow must be seen as an ideal thing, an endless flux flowing from something not unlike the immense thigh of a pig. The term heil, in fact, designates the pure continuity that any one sort of matter ideally possesses. When Robert Jolin describes the little balls and pinches of snuff used in a certain initiation ceremony, he shows that they are produced each year as a sample taken from an infinite series that theoretically has one and only one origin, a single ball that extends to the very limits of the universe. Far from being the opposite of continuity, the break or interruption conditions this continuity. It presupposes or defines what it cuts into as an ideal continuity. This is because, as we have seen, every machine is a machine of a machine. The machine produces an interruption of the flow only insofar as it is connected to another machine that supposedly produces this flow. And doubtless, this second machine in turn is really an interruption or break, too. But it is such only in relationship to a third machine that ideally, that is to say relatively, produces a continuous, infinite flux. For example, the anus machine and the intestine machine, the intestine machine and the stomach machine, the stomach machine and the mouth machine, the mouth machine and the flow of milk of a herd of dairy cattle, and then, and then, and then. In a word, Every machine functions as a break in the flow in relation to the machine to which it is connected, but at the same time is also a flow itself, or the production of a flow, in relation to the machine connected to it. This is the law of production of production. That is why, at the limit point of all the transverse or transfinite connections, the partial object and the continuous flux the interruption and the connection fuse into one. Everywhere there are breaks flows out of which desire wells up, thereby constituting its productivity and continually grafting the process of production onto the product. It is very curious that Melanie Klein, whose discovery of partial objects was so far reaching, neglects to study flows from this point of view and declares that they are of no importance. She thus sorts circuits all the connections. 
one thing I do want to go over is the footnote that they have on Heil. Uh, it functions like a ham slicing machine removing portions. Uh, the footnote from the translator. The author's word for this process is prétevement. I'm anglicizing it, sorry. The French word has a number of meanings, including a skimming off or draining off, a removal of a certain quantity as a sample for purposes of testing, a setting apart of a portion or share of a whole, a deduction from a sum of money on a deposit. In the English text that follows, in a number of cases, the noun prélèvement or the corresponding verb prélever will be indicated in parentheses following its translation. All right, so starting off with a very nice long paragraph. Uh, as we've discussed, one of the big deals for them is that we're trying to get to a, a materialist unconscious, the idea that we're actually able to describe how these things function. The history of psychoanalysis up until this point really was led by a lot of people, but two sort of schools of thought. Uh, I won't include Jung in this yet. Sorry, Ken. Um, uh, I would say he's more contemporary to lose anyway. Uh, Freud, who basically came up with this idea around the unconscious being able to function and the id, the ego, the superego, these components of us, this is the way it works, and how our unconscious works is a bit of a miasma. Lacan uh, took this idea and said, sure, it's a bit of a miasma, but the unconscious functions like a language, has a, has a structure to it, which is an interesting thought. They take this almost another step further, and they say, there is a much, uh, much, uh, uh, much more machinic, much more materialist way that the unconscious operates. In fact, it's more than just how the unconscious operates. It's how uh, we sort of have experiences, how desire is produced. Um, it, I, I know it wasn't contemporary to the loose. Don't quote me. Don't correct me on timing. But I'm trying to just describe the genealogy of how we get to this point. Um, uh, so this opens up their discussion where they're basically trying to respond to the idea and their assumed critique that people will have where, oh, you're just being allegorical. Things operate like a machine, but we're not actually machines. And they're being like, no, that there is actual literal machinery to this, uh, apparatuses, uh, actual functioning to it. Uh, everything is machines. This is not some cute allegory we're using like uh, the... The stage of a play is what a dream is like, as an example. Um, so that's, uh, this opening paragraph is essentially about that. Um, please, uh, any questions, any comments? So it's worth expanding on what they mean by materialist here, because that brings in a lot of connotations, right? In the last section, we saw how their, their idea of materialist psychiatry is uh, focused on desire, right? Desire and production. Here in this opening paragraph, we're seeing them go into how they're going to understand desire and production, but also the machinic, right? So they're starting to build out exactly what they mean by materialist psychiatry here in the machinic element, but also the element of flow, or I guess Heil, if you want to be, I think that's Greek, but um. Right, they're building out these flows and these machines, and they're pointing out how this kind of works in terms of um, the machinic here, right? So we're seeing how the machinic and the flows actually function during the first synthesis, how the machinic works with the flows through a partial object to start producing 
and interrupting that flow in doing so. There remains a continuity, right? Because all this is connected, there's a circulation happening of the flows. So the point I just wanted to make here is that when they say stomach machine, they're not just doing that to make a suffix, right? They're not just trying to uh, be cute here or to say that by making it machinic, they've made it materialist. They're very interested in how something like a stomach works with flows of desire, not simply just flows of uh, stomach acid, but, but where the desire plays into the machinic to produce and differentiate during that process of production. Yes, it's it's very important that we think about things and, and they get into this when they talk about the stomach machine being connected to the intestine machine. Uh, all I can think is the arm bones connected to the shoulder bone, like that song from when I was a kid, because that's kind of how they're talking about the, these machines operate by doing a thing and being connected to the one after it. And as they talk about this, the, the flux, the flow, the, the heil, this, the matter of life, the matter of things that are going from one to another. And each one is apportioning a little bit and it continues on and it's doing work. The, the continuous nature of that from my, arm machine moving my holding my hand machine which moves my finger machine to type on my keyboard machine which you know connects to my computer machine which connects to my discord machine etc this continuous line and how these things have desire move through them uh it's a really i, I it's a really great use of it thanks jack that's a good point um Bostgard asks is there a floor or a ceiling in this universe of machines within machines and machines connecting machines uh, is there any use pursuing atomic machines or universal hypermolecular machines? Uh, they, they will get into this. I think I understand uh, your um, general question, but I would say no. Everything is made of machines uh, is very much how they talk about this. Everything. I'd, I'd have to ask what you mean there by floor and ceiling. Like, let's say you're trying to figure out the limits. Um, okay, yeah. So it's all it's all contextual, right? They're working with desiring production and uh, uh, desiring flows, right? High on the machinic there. So um, yeah, I suppose you could try and put atoms and that into it, but the point is to understand the metaphysicality there, right? Um, in terms of limits, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is it's not meant to explain everything, right? They're not trying to make a meta-narrative. So I guess that would be the only limit I could offer. I would say that uh, for now, we're going to at some point uh, get in the concept of uh, what they call regimes. Uh, but essentially, we're going to be talking about two types of, of production, and that is desire and social. I don't believe that there is an upper limit to either or a lower limit in the same sort of way. So limits and edges about this are very difficult because we're talking about essentially the, uh, the psychic matter that makes up everything and how it produces and moves through stuff, how it interacts when these things come together. When my, my machines start colliding with yours, does that mean that there's no more desiring machines? No, of course, there's still a bunch of them, but we can start discussing about them in a meta way, like a larger scale way, uh, a molar way, as they would say. Um, so it's, it's them talking about kind of these two regimes, but I still wouldn't say that there's that many limits. Um, 
Um, Misha asks, uh, am I correct to say that the metaphysical sense, the concept of the machine applies to any physical thing we could discover? Uh, well, this is, this is a whole discussion and there's a whole set of uh, thinkers in a lot of different directions on this. Um, I tend to go down the path where the answer would be yes. Uh, the, the nature of machines and desiring production and how things are connected, I would absolutely say that yes, it applies to anything we discover that's part of the process of anything. So yes, it's, it's important to understand and look at all the different connections and how they're made. Yeah, I agree with you. It's got to be contextualized in the metaphysics, right? So this is what I mean. The point is not to say materialist psychiatry is about making things into machines. The point is to understand these machines in relation to the flows, the production, right, desiring production thereby, and the three syntheses. And, and elsewhere, just to make it extra complicated, in some of the other tests they have, they talk about abstract machines. So <laughs> hold on to your horses that, or, or your hats, however you like. It, it's, it's a, again, their, their goal is to try to talk about uh, these things at a level that hadn't been broken down to this point before. It's a sort of extreme Marxism of materialism, which is, uh, that's a shitty way of putting it, but it's a, it's a, big deal that they're able to start breaking down here is how these things function and here's how desire moves around that it's not just some sort of thing that's produced by some other signifier but here's how desire moves here's how it's produced and here's how it is affected by what it goes through and here's how you can sort of trace it back it's going to be very very important uh and we'll get through the rest of this uh, chapter as we get into section two and then really into section three and then even more into section four to understand that this is kind of what they're driving at, this ability to not talk about the larger concepts of ideas and how they, you know, but how literally things connect to each other. Um, it's a big deal to them. Uh, and if there's no more questions, I do want to get to the next paragraph. Um, <clears throat> Connecticut, connect I cut cries little Joey. In his study, The Empty Fortress, Bruno Bettelheim paints the portrait of this young child who can live, eat, defecate, and sleep only if he is plugged into machines provided with motors, wires, lights, carburetors, propellers, and steering wheels. An electrical feeding machine, a car machine that enables him to breathe, an anal machine that lights up. There are very few examples that cast as much light on the regime of desiring production and the way in which breaking down constitutes an integral part of the functioning, or the way in which the cutting off is an integral part of mechanical connections. Doubtless, there are those who will object that this mechanical, schizophrenic life expresses the absence and the, the destruction of desire rather than desire itself and presupposes certain extremely negative attitudes on the part of his parents to which the child reacts by turning himself into a machine. But even Bettelheim, who has a noticeable bias in favor of Oedipal or pre-Oedipal causality, admits that this sort of causality intervenes only in response to autonomous aspects of the productivity or the activity of the child, although he later discerns in him a non-productive stasis or an attitude of total withdrawal. Hence there is, first of all, according to Bettelheim, an autonomous reaction to the total life experience of which the mother is only a part. Also, we must not think that the machines themselves are proof of the loss or repression of desire, which Bettelheim translates in terms of autism. We find ourselves confronted with the same problem once again. How has the process of production of desire, 
how have the child's desiring machines begun to turn endlessly round and round in a total vacuum so as to produce the child machine? How has the process turned into an end in itself? Or how has the child become the victim of a premature interruption or a terrible frustration? It is only by means of the body without organs, eyes closed tight, nostrils pinched shut, ears stopped up, that something is produced, counterproduced, something that diverts or frustrates the entire process of production, of which it is nonetheless still a part. But the machine remains desire, an investment of desire, whose history unfolds by way of the primary repression and the return of the repressed in the succession of the states of paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines through which little Joey passes as Bettelheim's therapy progresses. I'm going to do my best not to just spend the next 20 minutes talking about Bettelheim in this case. We did that the first time around, and it's a uh, whole thing. Um, the one thing I will say is uh, be very careful when they say uh, autism here does not mean what I think we understand it to mean now. It has been 60 years. <laughs> it's more, I think, for the Bettelheim case. Uh, a lot of stuff's changed. So... Um, their their use of it is uh, a little bit different than ours. It plays more into, uh, I don't know, I, I'm hesitant to say, not super experienced in what they would consider it back then, but it's not what we know it now. <clears throat> uh, any comments? If someone want to jump in and talk about this uh, paragraph? You, you're spot on there, because right, if we go back to the previous section, autism is understood at this time to be part of schizophrenia. So you're right, they're playing on that. Yeah, and... The, uh, the thing I attach to, if there's a single uh, sentence in here, it is uh, even Bettelheim, who has a noticeable bias in favor of Oedipal or pre-Oedipal causality, uh, which is, uh, Bettelheim absolutely is the type of person who naturally would go, well, he doesn't have a good relationship with his father. His father wasn't around. His mother uh, was overindulgent, blah, blah, blah. That That's the reason that he's like this. Uh, but even Bettelheim, quote, admits that this sort of causality intervenes only in response to autonomous aspects of the productivity or the activity of the child. Uh, as it says, hence there is, first of all, an autonomous reaction to the total life experience of which the mother is only a part. Uh, as we've been talking about in the different sections up until this point, uh, a lot of what they're saying is uh, a response to the idea that Oedipus is something we are born with and something we have to be fixed towards. And their response is, no, the relationship, we may have a shitty relationship with my mother. I may have an awful relationship with my father. I may want to kill my dad. Like, all of these things. There may be Oedipal aspects. But this is in response to the total life experience, as they would uh, say here, of which the mother is only a part. Uh, that, that, I think, is really what they're trying to get at through this paragraph, where they're aiming at Instead of this big thing, that, oh, it's Oedipus, it's taking effect, this kid needs to be fixed, it's much more of a push towards, hey, no, actually, he has all of this life experience. And as we went through the first time we read it, Bettelheim very much breaks down a lot of the things that this kid went through and really talks about how actually this behavior is more related to this incident and these other things that happened as he experienced life growing up. So it's an interesting sort of reversal of what is commonly thought of Oedipus. And I think that's the point I, I try to get from here, that uh, we are that which we've experienced, essentially. Mm, but we've got to be careful not to put this into like a self in that. 
because they so I agree with your first part about Oedipus. I think that's spot on that they're trying to say, right, even Bedelin has to acknowledge that Oedipus is sort of secondary to this, right? Oedipus is an intervention, right? It's not the primary root. It's not the cause. It's not even necessarily the teleological aspect. It's an intervention here, right? So there's an interesting observation there. To the point about um, you are what you experience, right? They're going a little bit beyond that, right? They're not trying to get out of self here. They're trying to get out desiring production in terms of the body without organs, right? So what's being produced here, what Bettelheim is even analyzing, has all been produced and is all in relation to a body without organs, right? Which should not be understood as a new self, but um, something a little bit different than that, actually, which I don't know if we have space to go into that. <laughs> no, no, but I'm, I, as a very simple version of it, the, the discussion they're having is about Joey and the experiences Joey as a subject has as part of the things that influenced him to behave or have the psychological problems he has. It's, there is a larger discussion here, but they're, they're pointing at Bettelheim saying, actually, Joey's life experience, as they say, his total life experience at this point, of which mother is only a part, uh, there's, it's, it's an autonomous reaction. Uh, and the, the usage there is very particular because when they say autonomous, it, it means that there is uh, an innate natural reaction to the things that have happened at this point, that there is no larger you know, a psychological problem that's causing it, no innate thing. It's this autonomous reaction. Uh, it's really, uh, really useful language, they say there. There is a lot more to get into, but I mean, for this paragraph, that's how I read it. <laughs> In, in a vacuum, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I only want to clarify when we say Joey's lived experience there, we're understanding that that is always in connection with other people, other things and that. Yes. Right, which is how they can make the move to say the mother is only a part, it's not the totality. And Correct. doesn't mean the Correct. father is the totality. <laughs> Correct. Uh, any, any last questions? Because the, the other part uh, is really kind of discussed in the next paragraph, and I'm going to start diving in there. So any last questions on this? It is, it is worth reading a little bit from Bettelheim. If you just Google it, there's a handful of really good uh, writers who've taken and summarized a lot of it. It's worth reading like a page or two, for sure, on this, to just to understand better uh, what they are saying things in response to, which can help triangulate what they're trying to really say as you're going through the text. It helped me, for sure. In the second place, every machine has a sort of code built into it, stored up inside it. This code is inseparable not only from the way in which it is recorded and transmitted to each of the different regions of the body, but also from the way in which the relations of each of the regions with all of the others are recorded. An organ may have connections that associate it with several different flows. It may waver between several functions and even take on the regime of another organ, an anorectic mouth, for instance. All sorts of functional questions thus arise. What flow to break? Where to interrupt it? How and by what means? What place should be left for other producers or anti-producers? The place of one's little brother, for instance. Should one, or should one not, suffocate from what one eats, swallow air, shit with one's mouth? The data, the bits of information recorded, and their transmission form a grid of disjunctions of a type that differs from the previous connections. We owe to Jacques Lacan the discovery of this fertile domain of a code of the unconscious, incorporating the entire chain, or several chains, of meaning. A discovery thus totally transforming analysis. The basic text in this connection is his The Purloined Letter. 
wonderful uh, if you if you want to dive into something. It's, it's wonderfully done. But how very strange this domain seems, simply because of its multiplicity. A multiplicity so complex that we can scarcely speak of one chain, or even of one code of desire. The chains are called signifying chains, because they are made up of signs, but these signs are not themselves signifying. The code resembles not so much a language as a jargon, an open-ended polyvocal formation. The nature of the signs within it is insignificant, as these signs have little or nothing to do with what supports them. Or rather, isn't the support completely immaterial to these signs? The support is the body without organs. These indifferent signs follow no plan. They function at all levels and enter into any and every sort of connection. Each one speaks its own language and establishes syntheses with others that are quite direct along transverse vectors whereas the vectors between the basic elements that constitute them are quite indirect. This is, I'm, I'm, I've been spending a lot of time inside of their uh, semiotics, and so I may rabbit hole too deep in here, so I'm going to pull myself back and recuse myself from discussing right now. Uh, what I will say is uh, absolutely worth reading the Purloined Letter and understanding uh, Jacques Lacan's sort of uh, semiotic chains and how they work. It's really, really solid. <laughs> But I guess just quickly, you know, there's a there's a lot of similarities here, like I said, between um, Lacan and the way uh, Deleuze and Guattari sort of suggest a subject is born. Uh, but the primary difference is does seem to be that they try not to view things in um, terms of a pure signifier, and so there's the main difference. Um, I don't really get uh, what they mean with support uh, when it comes to the support of the signs. How, how, how can the sign be supported? So uh, I'm going to, I'll take a crack at answering that. Uh, the Lacanian signifying chains essentially mean that a, 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 a sign has a master signifier, a sign uh, uh, has its representation, a sign means a thing because of where it sits in relation to other things on the signifying chain. And so the support is kind of thing after another, after another, where it sits inside of these chains. It, it's a really interesting way of thinking about how the unconscious works. Again, as they say, this idea of uh, the code of the unconscious, uh, that there's chains of meaning inside of this uh, is, is fantastic. Where they take it is they go, actually, there's a lot more happening here because any single sign, they, they're like, shatter the chains, break, all of them off, say it's a giant you know, string pearl necklace, we've broken it, they've all, they've all scattered. Uh, each one of these signs is something that has been a moment that has been recorded inside of desiring production. And they're placed and their location to each other is on the body without organs. The support is the BWO. They're not part of a signifying chain. Uh, they are on this large tapestry of life that is the BWO and their relationship with other things uh, is, as they say, uh, the code itself resembles not so much a language, which is kind of the idea of a signifying chain, but uh, is an open-ended, jargonistic, polyvocal formation. The nature of the signs within it is insignificant, as signs have little or nothing to do with what supports them, or rather isn't the support immaterial to the signs. The, the, the location, what supports them, the signs themselves have uh, and this is a whole thing to go deep into uh, their semiotics. Um, and this is, 
I, I think this entire section is about the uh, the second syntheses, uh, this paragraph, which means yeah. I'm going to spend hours talking about it and make still no sense. Fuck. <laughs> um, I was going to say because they were... Yeah, I was going to say because they were talking about code even from the beginning of this paragraph. It's like they don't mention the disjunction until the next paragraph, but it feels like they're brushing up on like the moment between the first and the second uh, synthesis here. Like we're in the disjunctive synthesis already when we're talking about the the signifying chains and the location of things in a chain in relation to other things. It all feels like uh, we're very much within that sort of like disjunctive organization now. Like, uh, like the chains are almost uh, like they, they're like they're only created not because like I'm supposed to be here, just like this is where the partial object fell in relation to other partial objects after the disjunctive synthesis. Yeah, and it's I think it's a it's a response to me of the concept of like the the master signifier. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, nosubject.com. Uh, it master signifier uh, comes from Caesarian structural linguistics. Uh, in structural linguistics, language is a system in which there are no positive terms, only differences. This means language only refers to language. Words are only distinct because they are not other words. Master signifier is a signifier that points to itself instead of other signifiers. Uh, the example they give is Zizek talking about uh, commodity fetishism. Uh, money refers to value as such. And all other commodities are thought of in terms of how much money one can get for them. That is, money as a commodity becomes self-referential. Money is worth, signifies money, instead of being worth X number of other commodities. And all other commodities are worth money. Uh, this, this, this structure and uh, setup of linguistics that they're saying, as a, as a thing here, they're like, no, no, this is not how this is set up. Instead... Uh, the support itself is actually immaterial to the signs themselves. The support is the body without organs. The signs themselves follow no plan. They function everywhere. Signs can function at any level and enter into any and every sort of connection. Uh, the, the, the point here is uh, that they're talking about the, the, the relations between signs is how ultimately we interpret it. This is a longer, cheap, giant thing. But that it's that last one where it says each one, each sign speaks its own language and establishes syntheses with others that are quite direct along the transverse vectors, whereas the vectors between the basic elements that constitute them are indirect. The ability for signs to connect to other signs, we're able to absolutely do that. And kind of any sign can do that because the signs themselves don't necessarily have uh, a giant meaning or the nature of themselves. Uh, this is a long thing I'm just getting into, so I may really be uh, way off. But this is in line with, uh, I believe, uh, Yomslev's linguistics, which I've only gotten into in the last few months, and I'm not super great yet. But it's super fascinating, uh, this thing. Anyone want to dive in? Because I'm now kind of rambling. Uh, I like the explanation you gave, especially of the master signifier. I think you're right about that, that this is to understand... Um, signifiers without their need to be understood through a privileged signifier right, or a master signifier. I think that's spot on about um, the difference here. To, to expand on this further, right? 
so they're talking about how machines and, and flows have these codifications, right? Uh, have these relationships with recordings or um, basically uh, signifiers here, right? And those signifiers form chains. So you get kind of like, um, I don't want to go deep into semiotics either, but <laughs> I think of stoicism here where you have, you have like a the sentence itself can be signifying this way. But anyways, the, the point is to understand them as signifiers in relation to each other and thereby in a, a chain with each other, right? So when they say this signifying chain is polyvocal, they're getting this from Bakhtin, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And that is to say, just like Brooks said, right? Each of them speaks for themselves simultaneously. So each code in the chain, or excuse me, each signifier in the chain has its own capacity for um, for what it's going to say, right? And that these capacities are put into service of the body without organs. So they affect how the body without organs is going to produce, but the body without organs also affects their capacities um, as signifiers, right? There's a reciprocal relationship here, a reflexivity. Yeah, yes, and I would also add at this point, we're talking still about connections, uh, and, 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 but the, as they end, everything, all these signs can connect to all these other signs. Like there's, at this basic level, they don't have a nature, doesn't matter, that they're, they're able to do this, they follow no plan, they function at all levels. However, the next paragraph, and I'm just gonna dive in because it's, I think, the next step. The disjunctions characteristic of these chains still do not involve any exclusion, however, since exclusions can arise only as a function of inhibitors and repressors that eventually determine the support and firmly define a specific personal subject. No chain is homogenous. All of them resemble, rather, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me. Uh, all of them resemble, rather, a succession of characters from different alphabets in which an ideogram, a pictogram, a tiny image of an elephant passing by, or a rising sun may suddenly make its appearance. In a chain that mixes together phonemes, morphemes, etc., without, without combining them, Papa's mustache, Mama's upraised arm, a ribbon, a little girl, a cop, a shoe, suddenly turn up. Each chain captures fragments of other chains from which it extracts a surplus value, just as the orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp. Both phenomena dis demonstrate the surplus value of a code. It is an entire system of shuntings along certain tracks and of selections by lot that bring about partially dependent aleatory phenomena bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain. The recordings and transmissions that have come from the internal codes from the outside world from one region to another of the organism all intersect following the endlessly ramified paths of the great disjunctive synthesis. If this constitutes a system of writing, it is a writing inscribed on the very surface of the real, a strangely polyvocal kind of writing, never a biunivocalized, linearized one, a transcursive system of writing, never a discursive one, a writing that constitutes the entire domain of the real inorganization of the passive syntheses, where we would search in vain for something that might be labeled the signifier, writing that ceaselessly composes and decomposes the chains into signs that have nothing that impels them to become signifying. The one vocation of the sign is to produce desire, engineering it in every direction. 
So this is 100% Yelmslev. Like that's 100% Yelmslev. Um, the idea of phonemes and morphemes, a chain that mixes these together without combining them, Papa's mustache, Mama's upraised arm, a ribbon, little girl cop a shoe suddenly turn up. Um, I like this. I like this. This is a really solid clear. It's um, one of the fun things we'll spend. We could spend three hours on the previous paragraph and then we read the next one. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, okay, this helps. <laughs> so uh, give me two seconds. Someone want to say something? I'll be back in just a moment. What's the disjunctive synthesis again? The disjunctive synthesis, okay. So the first synthesis, everything's connecting, right? We have partial objects connecting with libidinal flows, taking on organization and thereby becoming machinic, right? So the pr process of production is starting to take place. Okay. Or rather the process of production is starting to take place during production. The second stage of that is going to be the distribution, right? So during production with the body without organs, being inserted and now either being so it has a relationship now with the with the machines and their connections the machines will either try to break into the body without organs and be miraculated upon it so attracted to it or they're going to be repulsed from it and pushed away now during this process excuse me i'm sorry i just ate lunch or dinner i'm not sure what you call it this time, uh, we'll call it linear. During this process, the body without organs will invest into these machines, right? It will invest schizophrenic flow that miraculates and thereby puts the machines towards a certain productivity, or it will invest a paranoiac repulsion into the machine, and this will repel it, right? But during both of these investments, during this process, there's still part of production and anti-production. There's still part of the flows and the, um, the skizzes or the breakings with the flows. So the body without organs here, when we say recordings, recording these, um, these functionalities, the way the capacities are enacted or performed, if you like, and the way that um, these codes are interacted here. So the body without organs will fall back on production in that manner putting the machines to work in order to produce. Does uh, that answer your question? Uh, it helps. So the, the other side that's part of this that's worth getting into is uh, they have a really great simple section where they talk about the surplus value of code. Uh, the orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp. Uh, each chain captures fragments of other chains from which it extracts a surplus value. The orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp. Both phenomena demonstrate the surplus value of a code. It is a system of shuntings along tracks, selection by lots that bring along partially dependent phenomena bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain, the way that these things sort of move. How we look at these, these, these literal signs and from a moment to moment, how the codes interact and produce things is uh, great. It's a really just a really sort of crisp way that they're talking about it. When they talk about flows and codes later on, this is a real good sentence to remember. Uh, we had a question if someone could riff a bit on the real. Um, so I think their reference here is not to the uh, later conception they have of the virtual being uh, real or whatever. The, the reference here is to, I believe, the Lacanian real. Um, 
Ken, Ken, do you disagree with that? Like, cause it, it feels like they're talking about like this idea of this uh, impenetrable thing that the very surface of the real is where these signs exist. The moment, uh, the real in Lacanian thought is the imperceptible reality, the, the real um, that can't be handled, can't be thought of, can't be signified in any meaningful way. And that's the nightmare of human existence, basically. Uh, and so they're saying, yeah. so go ahead, Ken. The, the real would be the very lack of this reality you're talking about. So psychoanalysis doesn't say there's this reality that we can't grasp. It's the very fact that there isn't this reality that we cannot grasp. And, and that lack is in the signifier itself. So the, the Saussurian diagram is the uh, signifier with a bar and then what it's and then it's signified. So like like tree, bar, like the word tree, a bar, and then the picture tree. What Lacan does is put the bar in the signifier itself and say that there's a lack of a binary relationship between um, the signifier tree and its signified tree. And, and it sounds mystical, but it's really straightforward. It's just that, um, you know, there's always, and uh, Zupanchich uses this word, there's an equivocity. Um, so no single signifier uh, has points to any any single signified so suit can mean both a suit you wear and like a business person and tracks does this in all words to do this and so then they point to um a asymmetry uh that results from this when talking about there being no sexual relationship um but the real is the very lack of a binary signifier that could guarantee some sort of real thing out there in the world. Psychoanalysis's point is that there's only appearance. And so their response here, uh, as they're playing into that, is when they say, for example, a few moments before, uh, the phenomena bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain. Uh, the idea that these connections uh, it feel almost not absurd because they're not, you know, intentionally divergent just this probability a markov chain this this might be around this other word is kind of how markov chains work is this has better chance than others to be after this which means that there's no directly signifying reason no direct logic behind it of why these things would be connected markov chain sort of adds a layer to that on top so it's a them saying the writing that would exist essentially on the real uh here would have this appearance would would have signs that directly don't connect to each other they don't have master signifiers they're not even really signifiers they're just the pure signs and they're laid out uh in what you know when you look at it you're like oh those sort of go together but there's no direct logic or chain as there is in lacanian psychoanalysis is how i read this uh paragraph you mean like the like lacanian style linguistics basically yeah was it Essentially, once something no longer has the ability to connect to literally everything else, which a sign in their version essentially does, you've by univocalized it. You've you've said that this is what it's used for. Here's how it connects. Here's how it works. It it becomes essentially binary. Does it connect? Yes or no. Very simplistic. Theirs is a much more free flowing. Uh, these signs can all be quite related, as they say. 
Uh, Papa's mustache, up, Mama's upraised arm, ribbon, little girl cop, shoe. Uh, those things inside of Lacanian psychoanalysis would be, you'd immediately start going, excellent. Let me find how these things are connected. What is the master signifier that gets a person to say these things or have these thoughts or connect these things? And they're saying, no, this, the signs themselves are fairly without direct meaning. You need to be thinking, in, because on the surface of the BWO, the signs just exist. They're just polyvocal. They can connect to whatever. We aren't quite at the stage yet where uh, we have exclusions, where things are forced into, into uh, biunivocal sort of realities of mommy, daddy, male, mom, uh, man, woman, uh, you know, white, black, whatever it may be. That would be my, how I'm, I'm reading their critique. Sorry, Ken. Sorry. Didn't mean to step over you. No, thank you. Um, and please stop me if, I'm, if we're covering what I'm interested in too much. Just interrupt me. No, um, no. You're, this is great. This is, I think, exactly the point. So. so so, for Lacan, the point is there is there is no woman and there is man, but you might as well say there is no man. So man is runs this structure of imposture and woman runs this path of a uh, masquerade um and so master signifier so let's call bureaucracy a master signifier right um it's the very excess in that signifier that is at the same time a lack. So for psychoanalysis, the negative one causes the excess, causes the enjoyment, um, which is more of like a positive mood. Um, it's that that has the master signifier work, and it's and for psychoanalysis, at least Lacanian psychoanalysis, um, it's this lack that allows things to move. So. Um, so what I end up getting, uh, seeing as being like a major difference is that um, for uh, Deleuze and Guattari, they're, they're almost pointing at the same quote-unquote facts, um, but how they're interpreting those facts are different. So for Deleuze and Guattari, that lack would be a skiz in a flow. It would be another flow cutting off a, another flow or something like that. Whereas for Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's it it is a lack. It's the lack of a one. I don't know if that help if that is uh, building off of our localization or not. Uh, I mean, I mean, I th I think it is. Um, I I think how I would I, again. Uh, I mean, my direct response to that for this uh, in the way that their uh, system of signification works uh, is much more aligned with. Uh, the, the recording over time of all of the different signs that, my, that have been connected to desiring machines in my periphery. Let's just give it that. I know there's not a personal subject directly at this point, but let's just talk about the life experience Brooks has had. Over time, these signs have sort of developed. Uh, what has happened is uh, the repression that comes after is the thing that creates lack, uh, where Mom says, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do this. Uh, you can't do these things. There's generalized repression. Some of it is not directly, you know, awful. I, I can't do some things because I'm, uh, 
Uh, I was a gangly kid. I couldn't be a star soccer player when I was in fourth grade. Things like that, some stuff like that. There's generalized repression that comes. But what happens is this, uh, that repression is where the uh, exclusions uh, start happening and arise. The reality is the signs themselves, uh, again, generally going in the same vein of the idea of there is no lack that is the impetus for us to have desire, but instead desire something that is uh, you know, positive within us, a spirit, a force, a libido that's producing and producing itself through these actions. Signs themselves are uh, not neutral, but they're able to connect however they're able to connect. Over time, uh, we are told that these things do or don't connect based on uh, all sorts of different things uh, and exclusions that'll come. We'll get into that in a minute, but I do believe you're right when you say that uh, those detachments, those moments would be the skizzes uh, that we're about to get into actually in the next paragraph. Uh, Jack says, a master signifier is the signifier in relation to others uh, through which the latter are all understood. Their differences are not between each other, but in relation to a signal signifier. Yeah, it's a master signifier basically is one that uh, other signifiers are related to when you discuss them. The example of uh, capital being a master signifier. Uh, it has very particular meaning, but you tend to discuss other things in relation to their, their relationship with capital as an example. Uh, so a master signifier is the thing that sort of projects meaning and again, creates a hier hierarchical system that they're really not interested in, uh, Deleuze or Guattari, both. And Guattari really goes in a lot on this kind of stuff uh, in his own writings. Jasper Maisie asks, uh, what about personal, I, I think you mean personal master signifiers? Would that be Oedipus? Um, so um, I, I would, Ken, actually, that's a good question. Is Oedipus a master signifier in Lacanian psychoanalysis? Uh, the phallus is. The phallus is, which is what creates uh, the, essentially the Oedipus complex. Um, yeah, I would say uh, in, in Lacan, perhaps, I, I don't think there's, in their systems uh, for Deleuze and Guadri, they're like, they're throwing all of that out. They're like, no, start at the bottom up. That desiring production creates, it moves on, it creates signs. Signs themselves don't have any meaning. And as we're about to get into, we start creating exclusions based on other things that happen after the fact. They're saying start at the beginning, don't start at the end, which the master signifier to them is kind of the end of it. Um, lack and all these things come after. They're post-subject. Um, so I'm going to continue to the next paragraph because uh, it gets into some of this. Um, these chains are the locus of continual detachments, schizes on every hand that are valuable in and of themselves and above all must not be filled in. This is thus the second characteristic of the machine. Breaks that are a detachment, which must not be confused with breaks that are a slicing off. The latter have to do with continuous fluxes that are related to partial objects. Schizes have to do with heterogeneous chains. And as their basic unit, the detachable segments or mobile stocks resembling building blocks or flying bricks. We must conceive of each brick as having been launched from a distance and as being composed of heterogeneous elements, containing within it not only an inscription with signs from different alphabets, but also various figures, plus one or several straws, and perhaps a corpse. Cutting into the flows involves a detachment of something from a chain, and the partial objects of production presuppose stocks of material or recording bricks within the coexistence and the interaction of all the syntheses. Uh, very short, quick thing, uh, talking about the difference between detachment and slicing off of flows. 
machines that utilize the flows and something gets sliced off versus those that completely break. Um, I do want to get into the next uh, paragraph here because it's kind of a continuation. How could part of a flow be drawn off without a fragmentary detachment taking place within the code that comes to inform the flow? Uh, when we noted a moment ago that the schizo is at the very limit of the decoded flows of desire, we meant that he was at the very limit of the social codes, where a despotic signifier destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bricks as so many immobile units for the construction of an imperial Great Wall of China. But the schizo continually detaches them, continually works them loose and carries them off in every direction in order to create a new polyvocity that is the code of desire. Every composition, and also every decomposition, uses mobile bricks as the basic unit. Diaschesis and diaspasis, as Man Manicau put it. Either a lesion spreads along fibers that link it to other regions and thus give rise at a distance to phenomena that are incomprehensible from a purely mechanistic but not a machinic point of view, or else a humoral disturbance brings on a shift in nervous energy and creates broken, fragmented paths within the sphere of instincts. These bricks, or blocks, are the essential parts of desiring machines from the point of view of the recording process. They are at once component parts and products of the process of decomposition that are spatially localized only at certain moments. By contrast with the nervous system, which is a great chronogenous machine, a melody-producing machine of the music box type with a non-spatial localization. What makes Monacau and Morg's study an unparalleled one, going far beyond the entire Jacksonist philosophy that originally inspired it, is the theory of bricks or blocks, their detachment and fragmentation, and above all, what such a theory presupposes, the introduction of desire into neurology. A little bit of this, Ken, is kind of responding to the question actually you asked about how these things become bi-univocalized and how this happens. Uh, they say it really clearly here. It's uh, the despotic signifier that destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bricks as so many immobile units for the construction of an imperial Great Wall of China. It's a great, great idea of how these flows get... Uh, broken and drawn off and constructed into these things that uh, become a lot more static, uh, a lot more immobile, and uh, what they would say is, I, I think, um, uh, repressive. So, Sam should be free. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, in the other side of psychoanalysis, the seminar, that's where they talk about the four. That's where Lacan talks about the four discourses, and then, and then is included the uh, capitalist discourse, and um, so it's interesting what Toulouse and Guadagni are saying here, because I almost can't imagine it, because um, it's almost like organizing a worldview without a worldview, um, because the analytic discourse, what it's supposed to do is to decompose a, a a series of meanings that a master signifier has sort of amassed over time and uh, and then has the analyzan produce a new master signifier that was different from the last one um but it's but it's empty now it, it doesn't necessarily have meanings to it um 
So I almost can't imagine. And I think an interesting part for me here is like, I think this is also whenever I get sort of uh, off kilter about thinking about how um, there is this one positive substance that's uh, rhizomatic and not arboreal, that it doesn't have any sort of beginning or end, or this idea of a of a surface that has depth but doesn't have depth at the same time, being the body without organs, like the the yolk would be on the same surface as uh, the the whites of the egg and whatnot. And so this is just an interesting experience for me. How do you? Uh, Maybe it's too early to ask this question. Sorry for rambling so damn long. Um, how do you um, use this then if it's not in like a worldview sort of way? So you're, I like your connection there. Okay. So is meaning... So I'll put it in terms of Platonism because it's the easy way, right? Is meaning in the forms... Right, something beyond where we are, something very transcendent, or is meaning here, right, in the world of change? So the, the classic Platonic distinction, right, is to say that we live in a world of change, right, a world of becoming that is, um, I don't want to say just perishable, that is incomplete, right? It's shadows or images of the world of being, which is the world of the forms. Right, this is a very basic understanding of Platonism. So for Plato, getting at truth is getting these images in relation to the form so as to understand the form, right? And this is what dialectics is supposed to do. You can already kind of see where like, you could walk out something like a master signifier, even though Plato doesn't have this conception of language. He'd, he's got the, more of the, um, the picture representation, but you can kind of see where this is going, right? The real is understood through the forms, right? The world of being is the world um, through which we should understand the world of becoming as incomplete through. Now, if we take this down to where Deleuze and Guattari are talking about the world of becoming, right? Where we don't necessarily need have this transcendent world of being. That means something like the worldview as you're conceiving it, where there's this transcendent worldview through which a deduction can occur, right, and thereby an induction, right, whereby we can understand and interpret what's happening through something that would seem to be beyond it, and yet also constitutive of it, right, so a very clear transcendent signifier or transcendent concept, however you like, or even if we go to like a transcendent ego, right, an ego that's behind, above, however you like, what's going on and yet somehow is sort of the determinant of it, whether it's through interpretation or something else. I would Deleuze and Guadri are building out before I turn over to Brooks to make the final point. As a, when it comes to becoming and changing, that's where the meaning is, right? The polyvocality isn't in the world of the forms. The polyvocality is very much where we're at now. This is why when I say when we say these things aren't real, what we're saying is that we don't have to go beyond where we're at to find meaning, right? Or uh, whatever you like being, it's very much where we already are. And that would go double for a worldview, right? We don't have to go beyond what's happening to get to a worldview, right? Everything's happening in relation to us. It has its kind of autonomous feature, 
and things are changing around us. And there's a lot of meaning right there alone. Yeah, then I think, well, first, Brooks, do you want to say something? Do you want to move us? Yeah, no, it's a, no, I, I'm, I, my, my direct response would be, um, and I'm just going to go in my shitty, I've read a lot and I'm not as well versed as a lot of people version. Uh, what Freud did is Freud said, actually, how meaning is determined is these, this handful of things. Here's how we find meaning and stuff. It's this, this interplay between a few unconscious elements. It was this amazing play. Like you talked about psychoanalysis is this understanding of, uh, looking at meaning and lack and desire and starting to put those things together. Lacan said, actually, meaning uh, comes from a handful of ways and there's this, this structure and these signs and there's a lot of different structuralists and all kinds of stuff that play with it. For me, how I read Deleuze and Guattari is they're saying, actually, meaning is produced and uh, everything is production, literally everything. And this is their version of how uh, desire is this impetus and production that grows. Here's how signs are created. And at some point, here's how they're signified. Here's how signifiers are created. Here's this. And they literally get to the point where they're talking about the meaning inside of someone's unconscious and they're comparing it to, as they, as we know from later, sorry to jump ahead, everyone, uh, the way that the despotic uh, works. The way the despotic socius works is by uh, uh, sending out edicts to lots of people. Each person does their own little bit. Everyone is a brick in the Great Wall of China. It's literally the example they use later in the book that no one is, uh, no, in the, the earlier sort of socius, people worked on what they worked on within their village. The village was essentially in a vacuum inside of production. Now the village is part of a larger thing. A village may be dedicated to building bricks, which is their example. Another one may be moving bricks, another one's laying bricks, another one's carving. Uh, these, this only happens at the large, giant scale. They're using the exact same method for social production they're talking about here as how we actually get these uh, repressive acts that come in that by univocalize, linearize, and basically, as they say, despotic signifier, they're not misusing that term. The despotic signifier comes in and linearizes, bionovocalizes, simplifies this massive, amazing tapestry of signs that can connect in a million ways by forcing it. So the meaning that we get and the way these chains are actually produced is through this process. So I would just say that we're talking about the production of meaning uh, or signification here. It's a materialist semiotics, ultimately. It sort of does, but there's so many similarities that, you know, it psychoanalysis doesn't posit some real meaning or some transcendence. Their whole point is to to posit the very lack of that thing and how the lack of that thing uh, uh, inclines us in certain directions. Um, but the difference I'm hearing is, and from Jack too, is that... Uh, Deleuze water keep meaning so they both say meaning is produced um and but but Deleuze and Guattari keep this sort of meaning that could be experienced as fantastic which people usually attribute to the transcendent and say that it's not produced by something behind it or in some other world, like in the Platonic forms, but they're saying that the this fantastic experience or whatever is imminent in the world, and so I think that's the difference. So for Lacanian psychoanalysis, they completely get rid of any sort of transcendence, um, and 
or even the ex an experience of the transcendental. Um, for Pelus and Guadri, they keep the experience of the transcendental and make it imminent in, in the world. Yes, I would also say they're essentially removing, uh, I think your quick summation is a better way than I was putting it. Uh, psychoanalysis is saying essentially meaning and desire and drive come from a place of lack. They're removing lack from it. They're giving it a uh, almost positive, productive process that all of these things come about. Like they're really trying to get rid of lack kind of across the board. Now, we should have a talk about this later because this is, this is literally what I'm diving into now with, uh, I'm going through Proust and Signs as I'm rereading Proust. I mean, this is, I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself because now I'm, now I'm out over my skis and completely fucking up uh, because I'm not super finished with this or have had a chance to really formulate a lot of thoughts. But this is, this is like super fascinating stuff because it's such a different direction than a lot of things. So I'm completely with you, Ken, on your general, like uh, maybe kind of thoughts on it for sure. I do want to move to the next paragraph, though. Anyone have any last thoughts before I do? <clears throat> the third type of interruption or break, characteristic of the desiring machine, is the residual break, or residuum, which produces a, produces a subject alongside the machine, functioning as a part adjacent to the machine. And if this subject has no specific or personal identity, if it traverses the body without organs, without destroying its indifference, it is because it is not only a part that is peripheral to the machine, but also a part that is itself divided into parts that correspond to the detachments from the chain and the removals from the flow. Brought about by the machine. Thus, this subject consumes and consummates each of the states through which it passes and is born of each of them anew, continuously emerging from them as a part made up of parts, each one of which completely fills up the body without organs in the space of an instant. This is what allows Lacan to postulate and describe in detail an interplay of elements that is more machinic than etymological. Perer, to procure, to separate, to engender oneself. At the same time, he points out the intensive nature of this interplay. The part has nothing to do with the whole. Quote, it performs its role all by itself in this case. Only after the subject has partitioned itself does it proceed to its parturation. That is why the subject can procure what is of particular concern here, a state that we would label a legitimate status within society. Nothing in the life of any subject would sacrifice a very large part of its interests. A uh, very short version of this, and then I do want to get to the next one because uh, I get to say the word monkey. Um, the third step here, and this is the, the third synthesis, uh, is that of the uh, residual, the residuum, the consummation of it as uh, each machine uh, produces and has consummation. Uh, the subject is created alongside the machine. Uh, you are a residuum subject, Rimke. That is kind of like your, uh, the experiencing force that you are, that which experiences these things is the subject. They, they mean here, I believe, the Cartesian subject, Gojito. Am I wrong? Anyone? Uh, let's not put it back into Descartes. Man. Yeah, fair, fair. But it's, it's the closest analog when we're trying to talk about that which, that which experiences, that which... Uh... Okay, so like with the breast and the... And, and the with the breast and the mouth, well, apologize. Uh, with the breast and the mouth, right? There's a subjectivity 
of hungering, there's a subjectivity of suckling, right? These aren't just functionalities. There's also effects and intensities that go into the subjectivity of those two machines. As subjects, they're produced in, in residuum there. Those subjectivities are sort of in tandem or along the, uh, the side here, because during the third synthesis, voluptus is, um, I still haven't found a good word for how I want to express this, but vo voluptus is consummated upon these desiring machines by the celibate machine. The intensities consummate the machines, and during that consumption produce the, uh, are the production of subjectivity there. So like the Cartesian ego, we're going to get into places we don't want to go. We're going to go back into phenomenology if we go there. Fair, fair. I'm just trying to, uh, again, I'm trying to talk literally to this paragraph to help answer the question. That's it. The, the thing we could do later on is juxtapose the two to talk about the differences, but <laughs> that, which could be interesting, but we don't want to equate the two either because they're very different. Even with like where we said with like lived experience, right? They're not saying that Joey is simply his lived experience. Did be Bakhtini about it? Words taste of their context. There's all these different things that go into all these different connections with other people and with other objects, right? So you can't just prioritize Joey's consciousness. Like all the other breaks, the subjective break is not at all an indication of a lack or need, monkey, 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 monkey. But on the contrary, a share that falls to the subject as a part of the whole, income that comes its way as something left over. Here again, how bad a model, the Oedipal model of castration is. That is because breaks or interruptions are not the result of an analysis, rather, in and of themselves, they are syntheses. Syntheses produce divisions. Let us consider, for example, the milk the baby throws up when it burps. It is, at one and the same time, the restitution of something that has been levied from the associative flux, the reproduction of the process of detachment from the signifying chain, and a residuum that constitutes the subject's share of the whole. The desiring machine is not a metaphor. It is what interrupts and is interrupted in accordance with these three modes. The first mode has to do with the connective synthesis and mobilizes libido as withdrawal energy. The second has to do with the disjunctive synthesis and mobilizes the Newman as detachment energy. The third has to do with the conjunctive synthesis and mobilizes voluptus as residual energy. It is these three aspects that make the process of desiring production at once the production of production, the production of recording, and the production of consumption. To withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over, is to produce and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. Great. Awesome summation. Paragraph to end out the chapter. And look at that. We're only an hour 20 in. Oh my God. It's like the best time I've had. Leaves us like six hours to just yell at each other and say why we're wrong. Um... The short, they're going to get into all of these things very much in depth a little bit later. The short version here is that we need to consider desiring machines, again, not a metaphor, not a analogy for how things operate, but instead we need to think about things as these desiring machines. They go through these modes. They have these interruptions. Uh, these modes are uh, imminent. They are things that happen as desire uh, 
energy, libido, uh, noesis is, I think, what uh, Terrence Blake is starting to push towards saying this, this energy, this productive energy is made and created with the connection. The, at some point, there is detachment. At some point, it's also, it's consummated, and something believes that that thing was made theirs. Um, and it's the final critique to just say, uh, Ken, that the last thing here is very much them making a, like poking the eye of Lacan. To withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over is to produce and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. Um, really direct response there. But I'm open to uh, uh, anyone having Quentin's thoughts, questions and thoughts. He does. He gets it from Husserl, and then uh, Terence Blake is using noises from Husserl, and then through, oh, my God, there's another thinker in there. I'm going to fuck up. Uh, Stigler uh, as well. Um, it's an interesting direction, but, yeah. Uh, anyone want to say a thing? I'm, I'm going to just sit here. So Jasper Maisie asks, what do they mean when they, uh, when they, D&G, call the connective synthesis withdrawal energy? We go in the last, uh, near the last uh, sentence. It is these three aspects that make the process of desiring production at once the production of production, the production of recording, and the production of consumption. To withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to, quote, have something left over, end quote, is to produce and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. So to answer your question, withdraw apart from the whole, what they're simply getting at there is like the partial objects. So like having a breast as opposed to talking about um, the, the totality of the mother as, a, as having a breast, right? It could simply be the breast, right? Because the mother doesn't necessarily tell the breast to lactate, right? The, Unless the breast has a mind of its own, but it's, you know, it's, it's when they say automata, right? What they're talking about is like, it's not like a consciousness is telling the breast to do that per se, right? Desiring production and the way this is all um, being produced is kind of putting this into effect. So this is the part where we psychoanalyze Ken, right? Well, I think this is the part, if anyone has any questions at all up to this point, because the next step is where they actually go through all that we've discussed up till this point. It's essentially a summary of everything they've discussed up until this point in the book. So if there's questions at this point, I think it's fair if anyone wants to ask stuff, if anyone has any, wants to try saying a thing, uh, we can discuss if anyone wants to give an interpretation they haven't heard yet, please, this is, uh, as I, I was a bit inspired by Terence's blog post about the idea of, of burning the book, because there's a lot of things in here that the, the reality of what they're trying to say and the story of how they're saying it and the thing they're trying to get us to understand is ultimately a process, not these facts. It's understanding the process of life and the way that it works. So the discussion about that and the talk through that is what's super important and why our project is very unique in these circles. So please, uh, anyone want to jump in, you're welcome to.